Welcome to Four Scores. I'm your host, John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. We're here today at John Debney's gorgeous studio in Burbank in what is actually called the Debney Building to talk about his music for many projects at Disney and Fox. John is an Oscar nominee and multiple Emmy winner for his music for films and television. You have a very deep connection to the Disney studio and the Disney family, the Disney extended family, maybe I should say. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your dad and his role at Disney. Oh, John, that's that's a lovely question. And I'm so happy to get a chance to talk about my dad, Lou Debney, Louis Frederick Debney, who was one of the earliest employees actually at the studio. Uh, around 1936, that's when he started. I probably have told you before, and I love telling it, so here's the kind of condensed version. My dad uh, dropped out of high school uh, in, you know, during the Depression. He was helping to support his family by selling newspapers. So one of the people that used to drive up every morning was Walt Disney. He'd buy a newspaper, and every day my dad would ask him for a job. So about a year went by, I guess. Uh, Lo and behold, got a job uh, at 16 or 17 at the the latest. I have his contract. I have his old badge. His first job, one of his first jobs was to be the clapper boy on Snow White. What does the clapper boy do? It's that thing they put in front of the lens of the camera, and they have the production title and the scene number, and they go rolling, and they clap. That's why it's called a clapper. Now, Snow White was animated, so what was his job? All right. A great question. Now, on Snow White and many of those productions back then, they do something called rotoscope. They would take a human being, dress them up in a costume. In this case, Snow White, the evil queen, was played by a guy in drag. <laughs> and so they would take that and animate to that. Mm -hmm. And that's what's called rotoscope. So my dad was the clapper boy with the Wicked Witch, who was a guy in drag, and that was his first job. So presumably that would be as early as 1936, maybe. I think that's exactly right. But he was one of a very select group uh, that worked on Snow White, and, you know, he spent 40 years at the studio. What did he do after that? I mean, was it a series of jobs at Disney? Well, gosh, yeah. In the 50s, he became a producer on um, Mickey Mouse Club. Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? Then Zorro, and then, you know, gosh, all those all those TV shows of that era. Like the Wonderful World of Color of the, the 60s. A little later, yeah. Wonderful World of Color came in, and he was a producer on that. 40 years of kind of being the guy that everybody loved, the fixture around the studio, everybody loved him. And he would just be the guy that Walt would go to, yell down the hall, I heard sometimes. <laughs> Lou, get in here, you know. So you come along mm-hmm. at some point in yeah. the 50s, I yep. guess. and um, Absolutely. Would you visit the lot? I was born during Mickey Mouse Club. So I got the rap, you know, I got the Mickey Mouse ears and I got the little T-shirt with my name on it. Grew up on sound stages. 
My dad would take me to, for instance, Mary Poppins. Uh, I went to the bank scene when, when Dick Van Dyke was doing The Old Man during the bank scene. It's a voluminous list of movies that I visited. Would you ever, like, work as an extra or anything like that? I did, actually. Well, you know, when you're the kid of a studio employee, um, you get those perks, you yeah. know? And, and I would be the little kid that I was terribly shy. I was, you know, little redheaded kid. And so they'd put me as an extra in the background. And Did you ever meet Walt Disney? What are your memories? Well, they're a little foggy, but my dad would take me over to the studio on a Saturday, usually, when nobody was there, and we'd walk around. And my, well, we would invariably and often run into this guy, this gentleman, and I, re- I remember being on my dad's shoulders. This is my earliest memory. And I remember we'd bump into this guy. Guy with a mustache, no the doubt. Guy with a mustache and this big kind of voice and... And I, and I remember he had a suit, like a suit, but open shirt. You know, that's, you, you remember images. Uh, and he would tussle my hair and he'd go, hey, Johnny, you know. And, and you know, they'd have a couple of words, my dad and Walt, and then we'd walk on. And, and I'd always remember vividly my dad saying, well, that was, yeah, that was Walt Disney. We'd be at Disneyland, and we'd be up in Walt's apartment as a kid, and that was the life. It was this wonderful... I don't know if a lot of people realize that Walt Disney actually had an apartment at oh, Disneyland. Oh, sure did. It's in um, right near the firehouse, and it's over, I think, to the right and up above, second story, sec- second level. And I remember it so clearly because we were there so often. Some of my earliest memories are being in that apartment, and seeing all the adults, the big people, smoking and maybe having a cocktail or two. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, was such a... This is a weird thing. I remember the ashtrays and the phones. There were phones with like a Mickey thing on it or something. The old rotary things. And um, we'd get an hour or two just the employees to walk around and do our thing. And then they'd open the gates... Um, it's circa the, the year they had those, for our Disney friends, um, those bumper cars that were like flying saucers. It was around that time, sure. like 1960. Yeah. And I think they took them out because people were getting whiplash and stuff. <laughs> but literally, you know, I was just so privileged to be there for all that stuff. It's amazing to think about. I walked through half those rides when they were being built, like, Haunted Manor, I walked through many times while it was being built. Haunted wow. Mansion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the submarine ride and when they had it all drained and how how weird it looked without water <laughs> and how weird, you know, bad it looked, you know. So what about you in terms of, because I know that eventually you landed at Disney, but maybe I we did. should talk a little bit about how you became a musician. I would say it was probably always in my DNA. I started playing guitar at the age of six, I think. And the reason I started playing guitar was my mom was in a Hootenanny group. Remember the Hootenanny? Sure, that whole sort of folk period. There was a folk period, late 50s or 60s. Yeah. And I would be the little kid, again, in the corner, kind of strumming away. And so I started by playing guitar, then started playing in bands. I was always the youngest 
kid in the band. But I was always embarrassed because my mom would take me to the gigs. You know? Sure. I'd always have mom park a couple blocks away, <laughs> and you know. I always had that thing like I have to sit at the piano or get my guitar and play and write. And that just turned into high school plays, musicals, um, into college, double major drama and um, music composition major and, you know, kind of went from there. When I was acting, I did a lot of commercials because I looked like a young Ronnie Howard, Ron Howard. and. Sure. He would even say, God, we look alike. Did you decide at some point then that music was the better path for you, better than maybe acting? Great point. Yeah, I was in college. Did you want to be a composer? I think around sophomore year, I decided, you know, I want to really concentrate on music. And that's what I started to do. But I didn't know if that meant, I wanted to try to make a living, but I didn't know what that meant right then, you know. So what happened when you got out of college? Well, I went for a summer job. Honestly, that kind of turned into a staff position. I was there. What was the job? You know, I had I had some skill with knowing how to prep scores and stuff like that. Um, so I was in the copying department, in the music department at Walt Disney Studios. What was that like? Did they have a scoring stage? They did have a they, scoring stage. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was on the lot here in Burbank. It was on the lot. Yeah, it was wonderful. I'll, I'll describe those days quickly. Yeah, so I, I was there. I was working in the cop, you know, copyist department, and I got to meet people like Buddy Baker and other luminaries that were still there at the studio. Major um, composers at Disney. Major film composers and a, a, a gentleman named Walter Sheets, who was an orchestrator. In other words, Disney had staff composers still at that point. Um, and I was just, I would take scripts up to John Barry's house or... Oh, that would have been for the time, for the black hole. Yes. All the people that you know and love, people that love film music. And I would just be in awe because that was the best job. That turned into, over time, Buddy taking Buddy Baker taking me under his wing, started to do theme park music. Wait, so you're already now actually composing music for, for Disney theme parks? Yeah. Or orchestrating, more to the point. It's kind of fun to think that you were kind of learned from the ground up. I did. The whole scoring business. I did. There's so many lessons I learned. One of the biggest I learned, Buddy Baker, God bless you, Buddy, up there. Buddy Baker would come in every day, coat and tie. And I figured out very quickly that Buddy comes in early and he leaves at five. And he'd write, 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 go to lunch, hour, come back, write, write, write. So every day, once he left, and I would peek in his room and I would see... At, in the morning, there would be a tiny little stack of music. And then when he'd leave that day, there'd be this very large bit of music. And I realized, ooh, okay, so that's what discipline looks like. He wrote all day long. He wrote all day long. He was a seminal figure there. And all through the late 50s and all He was music TV director on the, on the Mickey Mouse Club, I he think. He was. So did you sort of, at some point, sort of embark on your own career and maybe leave Absolutely, Disney? Absolutely, I did. Um, first thing I did when I left the studio, I did a show for the Disney Channel called Welcome to Pooh Corner. Oh, wow. With Richard Sherman. So let's talk about Richard Sherman for a second. Let's talk about Richard Sherman. One of the great songwriters in Disney oh, history. Oh, my God. Probably the greatest, he and Bob. Yeah. Robert, his brother. It's 
Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious I met them early on. I was just Wait, like, as a kid? I did meet them as a kid. Oh, you have to Can tell that story. It? Well, we should probably say that the Sherman Brothers wrote the songs for Mary Poppins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, when it, then the original Winnie the Pooh song. Original and Winnie the Pooh so song. so much more for and Disney. And so much more Jungle Book, every, yeah. everything. So, you know, going way back when I was like seven or eight, the story is this. Um, one day my dad bumped into Richard and... Um, he goes, hey, I've got this son of mine. He loves music. Can I bring him in one day and just you talk to him for five minutes? So I came in and I spent a day with the Sherman Brothers. This is like unbelievable. A day with the Sherman Brothers. I, I still can't believe it. How old honestly. do you think you were? Any idea? Seven, eight. Seven, eight. Um, I remember my dad bringing me in. I remember the room. There's the piano. There's these two guys. I remember Dick was banging something out on the piano wall. <laughs> Bob was saying, no, no, no. I know something was going I came in and scared to death. And it was one of those, hey, here's my son, Johnny. Uh, let you guys alone. And he left. <laughs> and I was just sort of petrified. And, and Dick got such a kick out of him. He still likes to tell that story. I literally said two words the whole day. You know, They took me to lunch at the commissary which is crazy. And literally that day and that moment, I've told Dick this over the years, that pretty much ignited my love for music, I think. But you did get to see them work. Yeah, I got to see them work. I they, just, that's mind-blowing. You know, my dad, just to give you the full picture, so I had that day with the Sherman Brothers. My dad was bringing uh, movies home, you know, on a Friday night. We'd have movie night, so I would watch 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Bambi and just there was something about the film and the light through the through the celluloid that really just I don't know it was magic and over time there have been other films for Disney especially animated films I was yes. looking over the list things like The Emperor's New Groove yep. and, yep. and Chicken Little Yep. and I wonder when you do these films is there a kind of Disney legacy that goes through your mind that you are part of a long line of, oh, of, of great productions involving great people? That is such a great question. And I'll tell you why, yes, the, is the answer. When I was working at the studio back there on staff, one of my jobs that they assigned me was to go down. This is a great story. So... <laughs> They'd tell me to go to the shorts building and downstairs in the dungeon, they called it, was this room. And it was floor to ceiling with scores, original scores. So there in front of me was Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, not only the original handwritten scores, but the parts. And in that room, like the water was dripping. It was in a bad state. It was in a bad state. A lot of scores were deteriorating so one of the things i did for a number of weeks was to organize that that room you organized the disney music library i did and i don't tell them is anybody listening john <laughs> speaking of the legacy i got to take home scores study them take them back put them back it's a kind of education at the way. foot of the masters sure. you know i would listen remember records <laughs> 
I would listen to records and Follow study the score. these scores. Sure. Then I would take them back, and I kind of got that room in order. They didn't think they were worth anything. But you had the opportunity to sort of digest I the did. sort of Disney sound. Oh, I did. And not only just the scores, but the technique and the way Disney used to do it. And it's a lost art. It truly is a lost art. In what sense? Well, in those days, they would have things called exposure sheets. Each sheet was three feet of film. And on that, the animators would mark that the action and where everything was hitting on the frame of where it was hitting on top of what, what the animators were describing. And, and it was all timed to the frame. Which clearly indicates that the animators were working hand-in-hand with the composers. Absolutely. Sure. So, so, so for things like Dumbo and yeah. Bambi and Pinocchio and yep. those early features, the composers and, and animators were hand-in-hand storytellers. Yes, yes. So much so that um, people don't realize that the music is so complex. When you hear a five-minute piece of uh, something like any of those films from Pinocchio, let's say it's a sequence, that sequence was actually broken up into 30 little pieces of music. It was so exact that they were going to the frame and every little action, as you know, that's why they call it Mickey Mousing, right. for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Uh, Mickey Mousing meaning that you're catching every little nuance and every little action in the music. that a character in the music. Yeah. That's, that's where the phrase was coined. I not only studied the music, but the technique of it all was unbelievably interesting to me. They, they haven't done it like that for many years. Uh, it's much, it's all different now. Four Scores is brought to you by Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including John Debney's scores from The Jungle Book, Chicken Little, The Princess Diaries, and The Emperor's New Groove. The Four Scores Playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you want. But you've also done, obviously, a lot of live action. I have. And it occurred to me that The Princess Diaries mm-hmm. um, is not only a Debney score, but also an opportunity to work with the great director, Gary Marshall. Oh, my God, yes. Oh, Gary Marshall. Because you guys did several films together. I had the great gift to work with him for 15 years, at least. Seven movies, I think. And he was just the greatest joy in the world. And... You know, everyone loved him. Did he care about music? He definitely cared about music. He loved music. He was very, <laughs> he had very specific tastes in music. He, you know, he's a writer. Yeah. So writers never want music to intrude. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. They, they want to hear the dialogue and, the, you know, and well, they should. But Gary had very specific tastes. Like there were certain instruments he didn't like. He didn't like the flute. <laughs> he didn't love the flute, you know, and if it had a nice melody, he loved it. Um, if I threw in a snare drum every now and then, he, he was a, a drummer. Oh, so he was. So if I put a little snare drum in, he loved it even more. And those two Princess Diaries movies, you did them both? I did. So before we get to The Jungle Book, which, sure. I, which I want to talk about, uh, we should talk about, I think, your relationship with director John Favreau. 
Um, John and I, it was a fluky thing. I met with him when he was going to do Elf, and John was a fresh face. I mean, he'd only done Swingers and Made, I think, were his two movies that he'd done. I remember playing, the first thing that he really responded to was a piece of music for when Buddy the Elf goes on his magical journey and he goes over the hills and and he's, you know, going through the snow to New York. And so I wrote a piece of music that um, became Buddy's theme. And I remember playing it for John and I go, what do you think? And he goes, oh my God, can we do something like that? He thought it was the temp music, <laughs> which means... That, you know, we put temporary music in places where you're going to have score. I said, well, no, that's, it, do you like it? You know, I, he could have hated it because I love it. I go, well, that's Buddy's theme. He goes, what? Play it again. <laughs> so it was like that. And thus became kind of a love affair. So let's talk about The Jungle Book. You have a personal connection to the 1967 original. Yeah, this is one, one of those. I grew up with... Bruce Reitherman. Bruce Reitherman was the original voice of Mowgli on the original film. It was a buddy of mine. He was the son of Wooly Reitherman, very famous Disney legend, uh, animator, who was the director on that movie. And so Bruce was the voice of Mowgli. When John called me about Jungle Book, he told me over the course of time that he felt it was in my DNA, you know, so it really was, with Jungle Book, sort of the culmination of a 50-year journey. And that's the way I put it. The last day of recording, I even said that to the orchestra. And we brought out Dick Sherman, who happened to be there that day. Who had written songs for the original. Absolutely. And he wrote new lyrics for the new Jungle Book, too. And of course, music in Jungle Book, in the 2016 Jungle Book, yeah. had a a tremendous role to play, I think, because oh boy, it wasn't. Yes, it it's, this wasn't just an underscore, no. and of course, it's all computer generated. The imagery, yep. yeah, it was quite a task, a daunting task. Early on, John, I think he does this stuff to kind of scare me a little bit, keep me on my toes, and, and it worked because he said, you know, pretty much all on your shoulders, you know, this thing, and, and I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, there's no dialogue. I mean, there really is very little dialogue in the whole film and he goes you gotta tell a story you have to tell the story because at that moment john didn't even know what this technology could deliver it's all brand new i'm glad he told me that early on because what that made me do it really made me think about every single moment of that film and what the music needs to tell you meaning long stretches with no dialogue the music has to tell you the story but, but did you feel the pressure sure i had to tip my hat to the old but i also had to come up with new themes and i had to come up with a mowgli theme and an overall you know grand jungle theme there were a number of times when sequences weren't working and he would tell always very kind and very very nice about it john would then tell me he'd tell me why it wasn't working he'd relate a fable and then he'd tell me about New York and a guy he knew in New York and maybe that's why he cast people the way he did Bill Murray as Baloo and because he's thinking of character all the time and he's thinking about his own 
experiential um, bent on it. But anyway, he would guide me through it. So then I'd go away and I'd go, oh, that's what this is about. And I'd then redo a sequence for him. I had to create something that was like big, as big as the world, I guess. And you did. Well, I hope so. And it was a big orchestra. It was massive. 104 people and big choir. And my memory is that it was an emotional experience for you on that last day. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't want to get into it, but it was like the last... The last piece of music. Everybody was in tears. Whole orchestra. Yeah. Because they knew my history. And then they have Richard Sherman at back. <laughs> I mean, how much better does that get? You know, so it was, of course, it was a very emotional experience for me. And I guess because of my history, you know. Sure. John, thanks for having Thank us you, today. Thank you, John. Boy, you brought me down memory lane, but you always do. And uh, <laughs> a couple of laughs, a couple of tears along the way. That's the nature. Thanks, You know man. how to pull it out, man. Thank you so anyway, much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It'd also be great if you can rate it because that really helps others find the series. See you next time.